Thank you, Izzy. That's a doozy. When, when, we have, <laughs> when we talk about the Old Testament, you get this, this mental image about old and dusty stories with lots of names that are hard to pronounce and narratives that are hard to follow. Well, I think that's what, what we're all thinking of. But I promise you, there is an incredible story, a powerful story in there. So we're going to explore it just a little bit. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So Isaiah writes, they will beat their swords into iron plows. But it's interesting to know that there is still a blade on a plow. Before our son was born, my wife and I, Jennifer, had a difficult time coming up with names that we both liked for our yet unborn son. It turned out that we both knew too many people, and apparently I didn't like enough of them. Which, which is a joke, but it is about how it felt. Every name that we seemed to come up with would get knocked out of contention because either we knew someone who had that name and gave their name a bad name, or because we loved someone with that name and we didn't want to take it from them. And so we eliminated a whole lot of names from the running in this way. There was one name, however, that was also eliminated from the running, but for an entirely different reason. See, I have a whole story about this name. I remember we were in the car when it came up. We were sitting in a parking lot when I first suggested it, and it was this classic Gaelic name from a book that I was reading at the time. The name was Cole. It's spelled C-O-L-L. And I thought it was just this perfect name. It fit our criteria. It was sort of a classic but not overused name. It was unique but not too unusual, and I was very excited to share it with Jennifer. But when she heard me say it out loud, she just looked at me and asked me to say the name out loud. And I, I did. I said, Cole. And I still didn't understand. So she, she said to me, no, what would our, our son's whole name be? And I said, oh, it would be Cole Burns. And then I got it. I got it that if your last name is Burns, you can't name your child Cole. That is cruel and unusual. And so our son is not named Cole. But I am still a bit sad about it because I think it's a great name, but also because I so deeply admire the character named Cole in the book I was reading that I really would name a child after him if I could. See, Cole is a character in a series called the Pridane Chronicles. Uh, it's a series of five children's books written by the author Lloyd Alexander, published between 1964 and 68. And I read these books first when I was growing up, and then I've only loved them more, rereading them in adulthood. They are in direct competition with the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings for best children's fantasy series ever. And they are just beautifully written. They have this really honest and direct prose. They are simple without being simplistic, and they offer this rich wisdom without ever stooping to moralize, including some insight that I think Isaiah would probably appreciate about war and peace. At its core, it is a coming-of-age story, and it deals really particularly well with that earnest and youthful desire to fight against evil forces, forces that are represented in those books by an evil ruler of the nations. And Terran, who is the young protagonist in the books, is enthusiastic about combat. He imagines himself becoming a mighty warrior who gains honor and valor by vanquishing his enemies. But the counterpoint against his sincere but violent ambitions is Terran's mentor and teacher, whose name is Cole. 
it's there present from the very first sentence of the book. The first book opens, and it says, Taryn wanted to make a sword, but Cole, charged with the practical side of his education, decided on horseshoes instead. And so we learn a bit about Cole there, and as it continues, Cole was once a mighty warrior, but is now a farmer. He is a grower of turnips. And between the two, warrior and farmer, he finds far greater meaning and value in tilling the fields and tending to his crops. Throughout the length of the whole series, Cole's steady presence continues to suggest that true heroism comes not in bloody conflict, but in cultivating and protecting small shoots of new life. Heron is a slow learner, as we all can be. He's given a sword early on in the books, and this is much to his delight, and he gleefully asks the giver what sort of special powers this sword holds. And he is told that this is just a bit of metal hammered into a rather unattractive shape. It could better have been a pruning hook or a plow iron. And the story as it is written from beginning to end in this fantasy adventure um, theme does not revel in warfare. It takes five whole books nearly before Terran finds himself in even a defensive battle fighting against the forces of evil. And he fights alongside Cole and other friends from his journeys And they are victorious, but with a short-lived celebration. Because in the immediate aftermath, Terran walks through and sees some of the destruction that has been wrought across the land. He walks through a village that is destroyed and discovered the dear friend and master potter was killed inside of his home, surrounded by broken fragments of what were once masterpieces. And Terran says to his teacher and his mentor, Cole, did I shout for victory today? Small comfort to folk who once befriended me. He stayed and he mourned in that destroyed village for the night. And when someone asked Cole about it, he said to them, leave him where he chooses to be. In the morning he will be well, though likely never healed. Cole himself dies in battle a few chapters later before the ends of the books. Terran buries him nearby, grieving that Cole will never be able to return to the fields that he loved. Fields which will now lay fallow. And eventually, the forces of evil are overcome and good takes the day, but the sorrow lingers. It's a melancholy ending for a children's book, but perhaps a perfect one. Because the naivety of youth has given way to an honest portrayal of reality. Oh, there is much to fight for in this world. But there is no delight to be found in the corruption and the destruction of warfare. To fight for peace with violence may well only bring grief. The author of the series, Lloyd Alexander, once wrote that each day of war takes us farther from all we could hope to be or do. We gain nothing but heartbreak and lose everything we cherish. Our lives erode and diminish. Our children see no future except a calendar of anguish and death. Our only hope for tomorrow is for peace now. The Isaiah narrative we're looking at today is threaded with these sorts of questions about war and peace, about our earnest desire to fight for what's right and how quickly that can become an allegiance with the forces of death and destruction. And we come to the Israelites in Jerusalem as they are surrounded by the Assyrian army, all too aware of the Assyrian army's conquests, how they have trampled on the tribes of the northern kingdom and on so many other smaller nations. 
They have little hope. But fortunately, the fighting hasn't started yet. And the envoys for both sides have met in neutral territory to negotiate their future, peaceful or otherwise. And so part of the scripture that we, we heard, that we read, is that the field commander negotiating on behalf of the Syrian empire stands up and he shouts his message at the top of his voice while speaking in Hebrew. But we did, in fact, though it's hard to believe, shorten down this reading to try to make it uh, short enough for a worship service. And in the shorter version, we miss some of what makes this, uh, what helps make this, what helps explain this, help it make sense. See, the negotiations have begun, and one of the parts that wasn't in our reading is that the Assyrian messenger opens by arguing and insisting that the Israelites should give up and join the mighty Assyrian empire. And the Israelite messengers then respond somewhat meekly, asking that the Assyrian messenger speak in Aramaic, as they say, don't speak to us in Hebrew, because the people on the wall will hear it. They're afraid that if the everyday people who have been conscripted to protect Jerusalem, the ones who are now standing ready on the wall encompassing their beloved city, if those people hear the message of the Assyrian in a language they understand, then they will be won over. The Assyrian responds by speaking even louder in Hebrew, shouting for everyone to listen. It's a legitimate fear because the Assyrian's arguments are persuasive. He capitalizes on people's fear, points out the strength of his empire, reminds them of all of the enemies that the Assyrians have conquered, and questions why they would stay true to the losing side. Because after all, is this not a world where victory goes to the strongest? Is it not power and might that determines all? Is history not written by the winners? And fear moves as it does, taking root in the mind and in the heart, pushing those who live under fear to question everything, to fret over the possibility that we might lose when another might win, to look for security and stability as quickly as we can find it. And the Assyrian promises everything anyone could ask for. In fact, he borrows from the Israelite prophets themselves. Surrender to me and come out, he says to them. Then each of you will eat from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own well until I come to take you to a land just like your land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. It's the same promise spoken in the same words that the prophets have passed down from God on high, a promise for a new day and a new kingdom where all people are fed and cared for and loved, a land of peace. And that is what the Assyrian Empire is offering to the Israelites. Is it any wonder that they're worried they might be won over by it. We can maybe still hear that same offer echoing in the world still today. Oh, people of God, if we want peace, if we want security, if we want stability, if we want food for our family and land to live on and hope for the future, we simply have to side with the mighty. We just have to pledge allegiance to the king of the strongest empire. We just have to pay homage to the strongest and fiercest warriors. We just have to sacrifice our money and our children 
at the altar of the God of war, feeding our soul and our future to the ever-running military-industrial complex which promises more than it ever seems to provide. It's a clever argument because it encourages us to see violence as a tool of the faithful, war as a vehicle of righteousness. It lets us justify our baser instincts as faithful pursuits, arguing that it's okay to kneel on the neck of dissidents, crucify the rebellious, violently suppress the opposition, as long as we can say and believe we are on the side of peace. This is the Assyrian way. The message eventually reaches King Hezekiah, who is a good and faithful king. And he does the best thing that perhaps could be done. He sends word to the prophet. He cries out in prayer. He hopes in the Lord. And God answers. God may not do what King Hezekiah thinks he will. What any of us might think God would do in a world where the mighty are victorious. Because God does not stoop down to violence. Does not suggest that a bloody defensive is the appropriate path forward. God spurns the Assyrian advance, but with a rumor and a trick. And the Israelites live to see another day, saved not by their own power and not by their own might, but by the righteous and loving and merciful hand of God. Theologians can spend a lot of time fretting about whether war is avoidable or not. There are whole books and tomes written about when war might be the right thing. It's called just war in these theological theories. And it gets very complicated and hard to say. When is war the only remaining alternative? But when we don't push things out to the edge, we can be clear and united in saying that violence is never the preference that God is always seeking other means, that God is, as Isaiah says, settling the disputes between the nations, that God is leading us all to beat swords into plows, spears into pruning tools, ensuring that we will not learn how to make war any longer. This is God's path. This is the path God chooses to get to peace and none other. And this is the path that we are called to walk on. There is a story that I love, and I've loved it so long I've forgotten where I first heard it or where it comes from. But as the story goes, one day we will all stand before God on God's throne. And there God will ask us, where are your scars? We will look back at God and say, we have no scars. And God will say, was there nothing worth fighting for? the sort of story that makes me want to get up and do things, the sort of story that reaches into some of those instincts to fight back and push back and stand up for what is right and good and just. But what does it mean to fight? And what is the sort of fighting that God is looking for us to do? I was listening to a song the other day, and one of the lyrics struck me. It said, bang the drums, this means war but not the kind you're waiting for. There are so many metaphors used in Scripture that call us to fight, to push back, to stand for what is right. 
but it may not be in as literal a sense as we might want for it to be. In a few minutes, we're going to sing the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal, and one of those lines talks about fighting, but not in military conquests, but in acts of mercy and love. We are to fight, to stand up for what is right. We are called to be warriors of a sense, but those who do so in a spirit of love and grace and peace. Jesus was once in a garden surrounded by soldiers with swords, threatening to arrest and crucify him. And one of his disciples pulled out a sword of his own and chopped off one of those soldiers' ears. Jesus healed that man, said those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he offered himself into the hands of an empire, an empire that would crush and kill him. I wonder if standing at the throne, the one who asks for scars might open his hands to show nail holes, might show the wound from a spear in the side, might remind us that God who is mighty and God who is victorious earned that victory through death. That in the throes of that death offered forgiveness for those who killed him. I wonder if the question, where are your scars, might be followed by asking, was there nothing worth dying for? There is a blade on the plow like there is on a sword. But the blade on a sword is for striking down another, and the plow is to be pointed at the very foundation of the earth or perhaps at the hardness of the human heart, is a blade for breaking something open, revealing what has been hidden, lifting up what was once buried underneath. The plow might be a tool to reveal what is at the core of our intentions and our motivations might reveal whether we are looking to strike back or whether we are looking to love. It might be that in the beating of swords to plowshares, God is leading us to be every bit as fierce as warriors, but with the steady faithfulness that only gardeners know, with the gentleness that it takes to care for fragile life bursting from this earth. It's hard work beating one form of metal into another. It takes effort and sweat and heat. And it may be painful and difficult when it happens in our own lives. And worst of all, we might find, well, that it is something that is happening to us and not through us that the plow might be cracking open our own hearts, taking out spirits of hatred and anger, fear and frustration, ensuring that every fight we fight is done with love, that every time we stand for what is right and good, it doesn't strike down another person, but offers up ourselves instead. 
It might be that God is bringing peace in unexpected ways with rumors and tricks, marvelous things that we cannot hardly imagine. It might be that God is bringing peace, starting with each one of us in the deepest recesses of our hearts. It could be that God is starting peace with us. And what painful, difficult, good news that might be. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite us to stand as we are able. We sing together our next hymn, O God of Every Nation.